audience, of course. Uh, as I was saying, I'm really glad it's a blue sky day. I love blue skies. My Colorado heritage has it deep in my bones. As we get underway today, let's begin with prayer. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be here in this place. We pray that as your word goes forth today, it will be anointed by the Holy Spirit, that it will be as seeds planted in our hearts, growing and bearing fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the great challenges in presenting a sermon is coming up with something that people will actually remember. Uh, just think about it. Um, how many times have you walked out after a service and only to discover that the message you just heard is drifting off into a sea of forgetfulness? What we need is something like the song that gets stuck in your head and you just can't shake it off. Actually, uh, there's a multi-million dollar business that devotes itself to precisely that task. The advertising industry uh, pursues the goal of coming up with something that will make you remember a product. This frequently is accomplished by coming up with an advertising jingle that gets a tune in your brain that makes you remember something. We're going to begin today with a little quiz that illustrates just how effective this approach can be. What we will do is listen to several advertising jingles and test whether you remember anything. See if you can remember the words that go with these tunes. Get it? You deserve a break today. Who's that from? McDonald's. Here's another one. I'd like to buy the world of Coke. It's the real thing. Here's one. Get that one? Double your pleasure, double your fun. Wrigley's Spearmint Gum. Here's a good one. Nestle's makes the very best chocolate. Here's a good one. There you go. You may have noticed that so far these jingles relate to something you eat or drink. If you just can't resist and you succumb to all of these subliminal hints and all the many others like them that are out there, this next jingle is for you. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. If the problem really gets out of hand, this next one will come to the rescue. Roto-Rooter. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Sounds like we just had a close encounter with a rogue jingle that escaped from a Christmas program somewhere. 
speaking of close encounters, that brings us to the place where we bring some science fiction into the message for today. You may be wondering why we have been listening to advertising jingles this morning. What we have demonstrated is that an advertising jingle can trigger your mind to remember something. The place where we're heading is down a path that will lead us to a sermon jingle that will help you remember the message today. However, we want something that is deeper in significance than convincing you to eat a hot dog. As my wife can tell you, I'm a fan of science fiction. And it turns out that the movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, provides an excellent example of how just a few musical tones can evoke memories of an entire movie experience. I contemplated playing the whole movie right here, <laughs> trying to set a record for the longest sermon illustration ever given at TCF. <laughs> but I ruled that out, so what I'll give you is a brief recap of what goes on in this movie. Uh, there are several UFO sightings, unidentified flying objects all over the world throughout the movie. And it appears that many of the people who have a UFO encounter seem to be called to a rendezvous. In their minds, they have an image of a huge tower and a memory of a sequence of musical tones. Several people draw rough sketches of the tower and one of the characters uses a bowl of mashed potatoes at the dinner table to build a sculpture of this tower. Concerning the sounds, the tones, <clears throat> among other events, there's a scene in India where an entire mountainside of people are chanting this sequence of musical tones that keeps popping up throughout the movie. You kind of get the impression as you watch that this sequence of musical tones is some sort of key for communicating with all those UFOs. The climax of the movie takes place near an amazing piece of real estate known as Devil's Tower. This tower is located in the northeast corner of Wyoming and it rises 1,267 feet above the surrounding terrain. One of the longest parts of my sermon preparation was taking a tape measure and checking that out. Sure enough. <laughs> Near the base of the tower, um, there is a large flat area where the major players are gathered for a final confrontation. At one end is a complex of scientific instruments manned by scientists and technicians who are wanting to communicate with those who came in the UFOs. At the other end is the mothership that was escorted to the site by the UFOs. What happens here is that the people, the scientists, the technicians, play these tones actually play them several times and you almost think the aliens are sleeping, but finally they respond. Now after this initial exchange, 
there's a very complex conversation that takes place through musical notes. And uh, everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> the interesting thing about the five tones you just heard there is that they have permeated our culture. This little jingle is everywhere in the minds of people who've seen this movie. As an example of this, I was uh, in the car listening to the radio, the news station, and they had a little blurb about some UFO sighting somewhere or other. And guess what the lead-in for that was? Yep, those five tones. It's gotten to the point where whenever you hear these tones, it stirs up memories of UFOs, visitors from outer space, and the entire movie experience. Ah, so here we are. We've arrived at the point where we're going to present the sermon jingle for today. You ready? Everybody get that? Let's, let's, let's do it again. One more time, just to be sure. Since you now know the sermon jingle, we could just stop right here and everybody could take off early for lunch. <laughs> or we could follow the example of the late Paul Harvey and pursue the rest of the story. The message today is mostly going to be a recitation of a lot of scriptures. In some respects, we might say the message will be more like a sermon and less, more like a lesson and less of a sermon. The passage of scripture that was the catalyst for our message today is in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said this to his disciples. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Note that how well you do the will of God does not correlate with extra inches of gold on your driveway to your mansion in heaven. It has to do with whether you will even get into heaven in the first place. And notice it's not the kind of things you've done, no matter how noble or spiritual, it is whether you have actually done the will of God. You need to realize that no one ever said it would be easy to do the will of God. In fact, we have a very dramatic example of how Jesus himself struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling to do the will of God. Matthew 26, 36 39, and Luke 22, 39 through 46 both present this scene. 
Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The King James Version of Luke 2242 has a certain poetic cadence to it. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If we were to encapsulate the attitude you must take in order to do the will of God, as illustrated by the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it might sound like this. Not mine, but thine. So, in one stroke, we've revealed both the words that go with our sermon jingle and the title of the message today, Not Mine, But Thine. It is important to notice that yielding to the will of God was not something that Jesus just began to do at the end of his time here on earth. Very early in his ministry, he was clear about this issue. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Not mine, but thine. He went on to say in John 5.30, I can do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not mine, but thine. In John 4.34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Not mine, but thine. We even find the importance of doing the will of God expressed at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We have seen how Jesus suffered in prayer to the point of sweating drops of blood in submitting his will to the will of the Father. And we know that Jesus suffered and died for us on the cross. How does what Jesus did relate to us? We see in 1 Peter 2.21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This verse is the inspiration for a famous book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps, 
what would Jesus do? First published in 1897, this book sold more than 30 million copies and ranks as one of the best-selling books of all time. Pursuing the will of God in the circumstances of your life can often be guided by answering the question, what would Jesus do? And surely you all remember the phenomena in our culture not too long ago when people were wearing bracelets that had the initials, what would Jesus do? Here's another passage, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That sounds an awful lot like it. Not mine, but thine. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we read this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why is it that this theme of sacrifice and suffering is entangled with the idea of doing the will of God? It is because our human nature has a great deal of difficulty in doing the right thing. This was eloquently expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Now, this is one of the most challenging tongue twisters in the Bible, so hang on tight while we read through it. Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And if I... And as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So, what is the key to dealing with the problem that Paul is agonizing over? Here are some verses that lead us to the answer. John 12, 24 and 25. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here we see that idea again in Luke 17, 33. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now we see Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And Luke 9, verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This tells us that if you want to come after Jesus, in other words, you want to follow in his steps, you have to take up your cross daily. You need to remember that a cross is something that you die on. What we learn from these verses is that if you are really going to be free to do the will of God, first you have to die. You have to die to yourself. Now, there's numerous examples in the scriptures of exhortations and prayers on your behalf that you would Pursue the will of God. Colossians 1.9 Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Hebrews 13.20 Now, may the God of peace make you perfect in every good work to do his will. And Ephesians 5.17 Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Notice that knowing the will of God is not the end of the story. You actually have to do the will of God. Here's this idea in Romans 2, 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, 
but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Same idea in James 2.18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. Our key verse today, remember, is Matthew 7.21. Right after this passage is Matthew 7.24-27. through 27. I'm just going to summarize what all those words in that verse tell us. Jesus tells the parable about the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. The point of this parable is that you must not just hear, but actually do the words Jesus has spoken if you want your house to endure. In other words, it is not enough to hear what the will of God is. You must actually do it. So, how do you do the will of God? There are two sources that guide us in doing the will of God. First, obey what the commandments in Scripture exhort you to do. And second, obey what you hear the voice of the Lord telling you to do. The first source is fairly straightforward. Read the rules and do what they say. For example, when you read the Ten Commandments, you are told not to covet, and you are told that you should honor your father and mother. The second source is a bit more challenging. Of all the voices that rattle around in your head, how do you know which one is the voice of God? Throughout history, there have been some amazing claims that God's will was such and such, and yet the fruit of what was done was patently not of God. Jesus gives us some insights in his parable about the shepherd and the sheep, John 10, 3 and 4. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name and sends them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Here's an interesting verse, Isaiah 20, or rather 30, verse 21. You will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. I mean, all the portrayals of walking with the Lord and following with him, when you think about it, the Lord's walking by your side or quite likely out ahead of you, leading you along the path. This one says you're going to hear a voice behind you. What's that all about? Notice when you hear the voice behind you, when you stray to the right or to the left. Jesus is still standing right on the path where you're supposed to be and calling you back away from your wanderings. So this challenge of obeying the voice of the Lord telling you what to do opens up an amazing opportunity for living an exciting Christian life. Certainly there's great fulfillment in obeying the written commandments, and they certainly provide the framework that the spoken word in our heart will not violate. But until you really learn to listen to the voice of the Lord in your heart and learn to respond and do what he says, doing the will of the Lord in that, 
you're missing some real opportunities in your life. Here are some more verses about doing the will of God. Ephesians 6, 5 and 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. This verse gives us insight into the fact that everything we do, including the most mundane daily activities of life, is in fact an expression of how we pursue the will of God. Here's another passage. James 4, 13 and 15. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. This verse teaches us that the entire structure of our lives should be based on doing the will of God. Then we have this passage in Hebrews 10.36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. As we bring this message to a conclusion, here are some final passages of Scripture. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is very encouraging to know that God himself is the source of power that enables us to do his will. I once heard a great illustration of this concept that this verse is teaching us. When you go in a room and flip the light switch on and the light comes in the room, who turned on the lights? The person who flipped the switch or the power plant that generates the electricity? Well, a little of each. But without that power plant, you could flip yourself crazy and never get anywhere. And so it is in your lives when you're trying to do the will of God, you can flip the switch until you go crazy. But if God's power is not really what energizes you and enables you to do his will, you just won't get it done, certainly not consistently and long term. Discovering the secret of how to let God work in you and through you in the doing of his will, rather than you mentally figuring out, hmm, that action looks like the kind of thing God would want me to do. I'll go over and do it in my own strength. Very significant idea. Here's another passage. 1 John 2.17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever more than anything you could ever do. Doing the will of God has some very long-term benefits. And now we're back to 
to the verse that began our odyssey through the scriptures today. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Today, we've learned how important it is to do the will of God in our lives. We have seen a lot of scriptures that give us guidance in this process. The heart of what you have learned today is expressed in just one simple phrase. Not mine, but thine. Whenever you are pulled toward doing something that you know is not the will of God, just remember. Not mine, but thine. Whenever you are held back from doing something that you know is the will of God, just remember. Not mine, but thine. Amen.